Hi there and welcome to New Impact Talks. Today we have Liza Donnelly with us. She's a cartoonist, writer and visual journalist at the New Yorker, New York Times and many other outlets. I love to have a creative with us today. Please Liza, introduce yourself to the people. Where might they know you from? Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, mostly you would know my work from uh, the New Yorker magazine, uh, but I'm in many other publications and uh, international publications as well. So, so how did you start with the whole experience? I know many creatives that want this to be their full-time jobs and not many get, get that privilege. Can you maybe start from the beginning? How did you end up doing this? I saw somewhere that you've been doing this for 30 plus years. So please share your story with us. Well, uh, I started when I was a child actually drawing to make my mother happy. And that was the, Im the impulse, the impetus to, to draw humorous pictures. And, um, and then I went on to college. I was doing it all the time and I, and I studied different things and I majored art. And then I just started submitting to the New Yorker magazine. And that's the that's the short story of it. Uh, um, just f I felt lucky that I found what I wanted to do early in my life. I, I didn't think I could make a living out of it. So at it, so I I uh, had a plan B. But um, luckily, happily, plan A worked. What was your plan B, if I can know? Um, my other passion was uh, biology. So I was gonna. I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to work with animals or work out in nature. And actually my first job, I had a job in New York City when I finished college, was to work at the American Museum of Natural History, which is a wonderful museum in the city. So I was able to combine my art, love for art and drawing, and my love for the natural world um, at that job. And uh, I could have stayed at that job forever, but I really, really, really wanted to be a cartoonist. So uh, I kept, kept at it at night and working and submitting and just pushing. So, so in short, if, in order to become this full-time, what you kept doing is creating art and you were submitting at the end of the day um, your art to through email, well, through email, mail, how would you apply? Yeah, there was no email back then. So uh, uh, somehow I learned the submission process at the New Yorker magazine, which is, if your viewers don't know it, it's very well known for its cartoons. And uh, it can be political at times, but it's mostly just about life. Um, I would draw, what you do is you draw up as many cartoons as you can in, any, in a week. And then they have a specific day that you send them in. And I would uh, do maybe eight drawings a week, cartoons. They called them drawings back then, but they're actually cartoons, like a single panel with a caption underneath. Um, and at that time, I would take them down to the magazine down on West 40, uh, 44th Street and drop them off in, at the, at the, uh, uh, in the vestibule with this woman that was behind a glass wall. And she'd take them and then she'd return my rejected cartoons from the previous week. So it's a lot of rejection. It still is a lot of rejection. But the great thing about the system, in, in a way, is that you the more you draw, Ideally, the better you get, and the more you can find your own voice. So, and the best cartoons are not, in my opinion, are not just about uh, a joke. They're about your way of looking at the world. It's my way of looking at the world, or the artist's way of looking at the world. So, 
Um, and that takes time and, and a lot of drawing to find find that that voice. So I definitely want to go deeper into the design aspect, but um, you've definitely um, covered something that is so important that I find with other speakers as well that come on the podcast, which is the rejection part. If you would look back at to how many weeks it took and how many cartoons it took, when did you get a positive response? How many cartoons was it? How many weeks was it? Well, I started submitting uh, right after college, and so it took a couple of years before they bought one. So if you do the math, uh, and I didn't submit every single week, but almost every week. I think consistency and persistence in, in almost any field, I think, right? right is is part of the battle is half the battle so um sticking to it doing it over and over again so for two years uh let's see now what one thing that the new yorker would do which was very helpful to creatives was they would uh when you got your your weekly batch of cartoons back that were rejected there would often be a note in the in there from the editor saying uh uh not this time or keep trying and that that was so helpful it was so it was so minimal but it was so helpful um that you you felt you were on the right track you weren't there yet but you were getting there so uh, after two years i sold my first one and then and then it wasn't another uh six months before i sold another one so it was really? very slow yeah mm -hmm. so so pretty much every week eight cartoons skipping some weeks probably for holidays uh, and this is while you had a full-time job yes I mean, many of them are really bad, <laughs> bad cartoons, but you have to do the bad ones to get to the get to the good ones. Right. So how did your day look like you would go from nine to five to your job? You'd come back and then how many hours would you be drawing, you think? You know, probably not every day. I don't really remember, but uh, it was it would be maybe work an hour in the evening and then over the weekend I would spend a lot of time um, finalizing them, redrawing them, rethinking them. And then finally the day before submission, which is back then was a Wednesday, I would stay up quite late at night <laughs> doing them sort of last minute, but I'm, I'm a last minute kind of person. So, so then you hit the two-year mark and they finally gave you a positive um, message. What, what did that process look like? Because obviously every week you're used to getting rejections at this point. Um, what was different about this specific cartoon and, and how, how did the process look like from them buying it from you? I don't know what it was about this cartoon, except that it probably was... Uh, uh, in their eyes, unique enough, different enough, then and and made sense. <laughs> Probably a lot of the cartoons I sent them didn't make much sense, or they were, not, they were un, unformed ideas really. Um, and uh, the I came to pick up my my rejected cartoons that week, and and the receptionist said uh, that the art editor wanted to see me, and so that was ter terrifying. <laughs> I was only 24, so I was I was and I was pretty shy, so I was like t terrified. I thought I'd done something wrong, but I went back to see him, and uh, he said we want to buy this cartoon, and um, I was over the moon because I think uh, when you get into the New Yorker magazine, if you're a cartoonist, it's sort of the cream of the crop. You get into a place where they really respect 
cartoons. They really love cartoons and they pay well for cartoons. So um, it was a it was a dream come true. And uh, then the next, so I went home. I don't remember what I did. I probably called my father. Um, and I spent the next week drawing that cartoon over and over and over again. And at one point I called the art editor and I said, I said, what kind of, what style do you want me to draw this in? And he said, your style. And I said, my style? I have a style? I didn't know I had a style. I mean, I, I clearly did. But, uh, so uh, I, I still have all those those drawing attempts because my style is, is um, loose. If you've seen my work, it's very loose. And so I, I draw it to make it look like it was done quickly and without any any effort. But clearly it took a lot of effort. <laughs> so so they buy this cartoon from you, um, which I, I enjoy that first time when you, when you get that success, that story. Uh, but what I enjoy even more is what you mentioned just now with, it took another six months before they started buying stuff from you again so so they bought this cartoon from you what what was the process after that did you start drawing again eight cartoons and did you just go again wednesday and submit the next eight cartoons and were there different expectations at this point i did keep drawing uh every week pretty much um Back then, you know, I would have begin. I had I'd started to meet cartoonists, New Yorker cartoonists, uh, at uh, gatherings, and so I was listening and learning what the process was like, and I had a feeling that uh, this is this is like forty years ago. So I had a feeling of what the process was, and I learned that if you sold one, it was pretty clear that they they liked what you were doing, and that that unless you really screwed up, they were gonna keep they were gonna buy from you again. So um, it was like, I felt like I was an intern learning the ropes, learning how to be a cartoonist from, from my submissions and what they would uh, buy or respond to. Sometimes they would hold one for a while and then not buy it. So you'd learn sort of what, not that you're, not, I have to preface this by saying you're not trying to draw to their taste necessarily, although you're trying to draw and create ideas that are sympathetic or, 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 or like what they do, but you try to try to stick with your personal vision and your your idea of what's funny or your idea of what, what you see in the world. So you're not like, you really shouldn't, if you're drawing for the New Yorker, you shouldn't like think, oh, what does the editor want? Do they want drawings about baseball? Do they want drawings about being married? You can't really, you shouldn't, ideally shouldn't think that way. Um, so you just do what you think works and hopefully they'll buy it. So I just kept doing it and with the assumption that I was going to sell again at some point. So there was no expectation that the next week you, they'd buy right away? No, that's how it works. They don't, there's no guarantee that you'll ever sell, but there's an understanding if you're doing good work that you will continue um, being a part of the magazine. And uh, unless, of course, there have been many editors since in my time at the magazine, different changes in, in leadership, different changes at the top. And uh, sometimes, sadly, an editor will come in and they'll just won't like your work. And that's the end of that. So I luckily I've been able to avoid that. I've, I've stayed at the magazine for um, through uh, three different cartoon editors and two or I'd have to look at the look at the history of it. But it's like three or four senior editors and 
three or four cartoon editors. So. And when you say stay at the magazine, was there at one point where they offered you a job? Or am I imagining like Spider-Man in the movie where the guy is just a freelancer with the photographs? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a freelancer, but I do have a contract. Some of us have contracts where you um, you get more money per cartoon and, you, and, and the trade-off is you give them first right of refusal. So they get to see my work before anybody else. They get a... They get a an opportunity to buy it before anybody else. So, um, mm -hmm. so at what point, or maybe a better question, why did you um, focus so hard on this one place? How come you didn't shop around? Or, yeah, I guess that's my question. Why didn't you? Well, you shop do actually. Or... You do. Back back then, there were more magazines that used cartoons. So you would, you would take your cartoons to the New Yorker first or you pick up the rejects from the previous week and then take them to, and this is before email, um, and just walk them to the other magazines in, in Midtown Manhattan. So there was National Lampoon, there was uh, uh, Cosmopolitan, there was Audubon, there was, uh, I'm trying to think, some of the other magazines that would publish cartoons, but they were a nice clump of them. They didn't pay as well as The New Yorker, but that was where you could sell your rejected cartoons if if you were lucky. So during those two years, you've had some successes then maybe from the different magazines as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that what kept you going for those two years? It, it did. That's true. Yeah. The other successes helped. Um, and I, you know, I admit there were, there were years in the middle of my career or the first, um, late in the first half of my career thus far that I really questioned what I was doing because it was very hard that, you know, if you're not selling for a couple months, you think, what am I doing? And of course you're doing a lot of other work too. It's not like I was starving. I was doing, um, I had the job for a while and then I would do a lot of freelance work for, for other publications and illustration. And so, um, but, uh, there were hard times when you question if this is really what you should be doing with your life. So, I'd like to dive deeper into that because also from personal experience, I've seen it with myself, but I've seen it with the startups. And there's a famous clip online from Steve Jobs as well, who talks about if you don't do your passion, it's just, it's so tough that when it gets really tough and if it's not your passion, you'll just want to quit. So can you kind of lead us through how did you um, motivate yourself during those times? What is it that eventually kept you going in those moments, especially because, you know, it was so competitive. And so, I mean, I can imagine so many people in New York wanted to do to be to be a cartoonist like you. So what kept you going? That's a great question. Uh, um I love that quote from Steve Jobs because it's true. Uh, I think that's what kept me going is it was my passion. It was what I what I did as a child and what I did in my early years uh, as, a, as a student cartoonist. Um, and I still loved it, but I, I, uh, I sometimes felt like the editors didn't, didn't understand me or maybe a combination of they didn't understand what I was trying to do or, and or I was not quite getting it right. Um, there was one period, uh, 
there was one time where I I felt a uh, an a surge of motivation, and I think it helped me turn the corner in a way. And that was uh, early. I'll start with saying early in my life, I wanted to be a political cartoonist. Uh, I grew up during a very tumultuous time in the United States during Watergate and the, the civil rights movement and the feminist movement and all the assassinations. So I wanted to be a political cartoonist and draw uh, about what was going on around me and comment on it, but I didn't know how to do that. I, I felt like I didn't have the voice or the opinions to do that. Um, but then I saw The New Yorker and I realized that some of their cartoons are political in a quieter way, so that's why I focused on them. But um, the reason why I'm saying that is it's a preface to this phase in my, in my career where um, I was just doing cartoons for The New Yorker and not selling that well, but selling. And they were always cartoons about, about life, you know, life in New York in the 1980s, uh, you know, shopping or cooking or chefs or, or just frivolous stuff like that. And then, and then 9-11 happened. And uh, I was so, as everybody, was so uh, uh, emotionally shocked and drained by that um, it made me question my choice of careers like what am I doing with my cartoons it's not really has not doesn't have the meaning that I originally thought I would use that for use my skills for um, but the 9-11 I did a cartoon uh, about a month about a month after 9-11 and it was a drawing of a of a uh, little girl talking to her father and her father's sitting in front of the tv he's got newspapers all around him and there's clearly the news is on the tv and she says uh uh, I'm trying to get the caption right. <laughs> Daddy, when can I stop being worried? Or can I stop being worried now? And um, they, the New Yorker bought it and published it. And, and I felt like I found my voice again, that I'd gotten back on track. And from then on, this is also, if you remember, the beginning of the, of the explosion of the internet. So I would do political cartoons more. I, I had sold some for the New Yorker before, but I try to do more commenting on politics and, and important topics that meant that meant a lot to me personally. Um, and uh, would, if the New Yorker didn't buy them, I, I found outlets on the internet. So there were, there were, and they didn't pay well. Or then there was Twitter. So I published them on Twitter with no pay. But it was a way to continue my passion about not just the drawing, but about saying something about the world um, in the drawings. And that sort of got me back on track. And uh, I do cartoons about not only politics, but cultural ideas and feminism and women's rights and uh, racism. So uh, that's a long answer to your question, but I hope I answered it. Yeah, well. mm -hmm. I think I think in that moment you through that process, you then also kind of found your style, which you really didn't know what it was. Right. Yeah, in a way, my, my thinking style or somehow that the original interest in commenting on the world as a teenager had gotten pushed aside in the 80s and 90s and it came back after 9-11. So, so then maybe a relevant question is from your story I gather it takes it took you almost 20 years to really find that thinking style to really like know okay this is what it is. Um, how would you have uh, if you you know, maybe help a, a young cartoonist or a young illustrator or even a young designer. How would you speed that process up for them? 
Um, and I'm not even thinking illustration card. I'm thinking all artists. Uh, I'm a filmmaker myself. So then the question would arise like, you know, at which point and how do you find your style in a way that wouldn't take you 20 years based on the experience that mm. you had? I don't know if there's a way to do that, uh, except constantly, it's important that I'm not the first person to say this, constantly create, just keep doing, putting, putting things out, uh, and uh, making mistakes. Um, that's the beauty of this system that, that I described, is that you do eight cartoons and most of them are not very good, but with, by doing the ones that are not very good, you end up getting to the ones that are good. And sometimes you don't even know what those ones are. That's where editors come in. They help you see. And a good editor uh, will, uh, will, will sync with your thinking. And, and um, you know, it's not like you have a conversation with the editor, in my case. You don't really. You, you can, but you, it's more like an internal conversation and a, a, a feedback from the editor either in not buying or in buying, purchasing something. So uh, I think it just takes time sometimes. And um, staying true to yourself, it's hard with the internet because you're constantly getting feedback. When I first started in this business, there was no internet. And so you didn't, you didn't get any feedback. The only feedback you got was from your editor or people who happened to see the cartoon in the magazine. And they would either say something or not. Um, so you'd have to really rely on your internal um, thinking and guide. And, and, look, and, you know, I spend a lot of time, maybe this helps too, a lot of time looking at other people's work, not to take it, not to steal it, but to be, to see what other people are doing. And, and it, it gets your in creative juices going and um, you helps you, helps you uh, pinpoint what it is you want to do or what it is you don't want to do. So... So, so then keep creating is the message there. Um, we've kind of covered it, of course, in tough times. Uh, you said, you know, it's your passion, so you'll continue doing. So when there are designers or artists listening to this and they think, okay, I need to create more. But if after a year they're still getting, you know, bad feedback or, or just feedback in a way, because it's a very emotional process and, and they put out content and they're not receiving the feedback that they think they will get, like an editor who doesn't want to buy, for instance. Um, what is a, an internal conversation you can have with yourself to, I guess, first of all, keep creating, but also second of all, um, figure out if this is truly your passion or maybe you were meant to do something else? Mm -hmm. I think you, I think for me you just I just keep going back to why am I doing this? What is the what is the reason? Why why is it really? Uh, what are my motivations? Um, and uh, is it is your motivation to to get attention to get recognition to get uh, famous to uh, or to say something? Sometimes uh, those get mixed up. I know that I'm your filmmaker. I've been trying my hand at screenwriting because I, I have written children's books, I have written books, uh, and I'm 
struggling with it. Like, because I, I love the, the form of screenwriting. I, I love film. And, and there's a lot of connection between film and cartoons, uh, if we want to talk about that. But um, I'm really struggling with that because I'm not, I'm not getting feedback and I don't know how to get into the world. You know, I don't know how to. So it's like, I suppose what I'm doing with screenwriting is like what many people do at the beginning of their career. Um, and so I check myself to see what am I, what, why am I doing this? Why do I want to do this? What, is it really the story I want to tell? Is this the best way to tell it? Is there another way to go at it? What are my best, what are my skills? Should I be focusing on a graphic novel instead? Because I can draw or, you know, I'm just giving you a snapshot of my brain <laughs> uh, to see if that helps. But uh, uh, it's a constant checking in with yourself, listening. I often say to people with cartoons, when you're trying to come up with an idea, you, you're actually listening to yourself think. Um, you're making little notes, you're doing little doodles, and you're, you're listening to your brain process all these different elements and putting them together and making, uh, sometimes making uh, happy collisions of ideas or happy collisions of images that come into something that has meaning. Um, you never quite know. And that's a lot of what this business is about for me is, uh, uh, not random, but like, uh, uh, unexpected, uh, uh, connections or unexpected accidents, happy, happy accidents of, of, of ideas and images. Um, yeah, I, I, what I think I like about that answer is obviously comes from somebody who's been, you know, this isn't somebody who is two years in the business. And so it's good to hear that somebody with more experience thinks that way and, and that it's a healthy way to actually listen to yourself, take a break and, and not be influenced by others, but always, you know, reflect about yourself. Um, maybe another question then, um, as you progress through throughout your career, um, this is a really common question I tend to get, uh, which is, when is it the right time to start going full time with this career? Um, how do you know? Um, yeah, what's your take on that? I don't know how to answer that. Uh, in my case, it was I started selling more to the New Yorker, and um, and having other illustration success with other places. I think I had a book out that I illustrated, um, and I, I actually joined a su support group for, which is another thing we could talk about. I joined a it was a very strange group, but it was. It was run by this woman who wanted to help artists who wanted to make a change in their in their career somehow. Uh, so I had a, it was a group of maybe five people, um, and she would I think she was a therapist by training, but she would help us get through the decision whether or not to quit your job or not, and that was very helpful. So that points me to to another answer similar to that is that if you're going to be in this business, any creative business, it's it's, it's so helpful to have people around you that are supportive, not financially, but emotionally. Like I have a wonderful, I'm married to a wonderful guy who's also a cartoonist. And uh, we talk about the business all the time and, we, and we're and we not competitive, we're a little, a little bit competitive, <laughs> but uh, uh, not in a serious way um, because we know we both have our own voices and we both 
have our own approach to things. So it's not like we're competing similarly. So get people around you that, that understand what you're trying to do and, and be supportive and, and, uh, and be supportive of yourself. Don't, don't, don't be hypercritical of yourself. Give yourself a break. So support a system, uh, maybe a group uh, of people that can lead you through that decision. Um, was it also, would you say, based on the story that you just said, uh, was it also a financial thing? Were you making more money than your day job that you found found it easier? I had to some, take I had some savings. I had some savings that I was that I knew would be uh, be helpful um, if if things didn't work out. I'm trying to remember this so long ago. Um, how, mu how much savings in months did you have? Was it like, because most people recommend six months. Is that mm -hmm. something that you had? Is that something you'd recommend? That's, I would recommend that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd recommend that. You wouldn't recommend more than six months? Maybe oh, 12 sure. months? Well, if you have that. These are details I can't really remember. Um, and maybe maybe I was really going out on a limb I'm trying to remember I you know this was New York uh, at a time that wasn't as expensive as it is now so my rent was not very much as small studio apartment uh, no children no dependents no nothing so that's helpful too if you it it's all depends on uh, where you live and what responsibilities you have well. Can, can I ask just out of interest how much your rent was in New York at the time? <laughs> $285 a month. What? For a studio? Mm -hmm. Wow. How much <laughs> square feet was that? Oh, I don't know. It was actually, it was a, it was a very small one bedroom. It had like a, a one big, biggish room. I, I don't, I'm not good with square feet, so I can't remember. Uh, and then a small little room where I could put the bed. And then actually I had my studio in there for a while and switched it around, but, uh, wow, yeah, $280. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you think New York is still the New York from back then where a lot of people can just move into New York and, and make it, um, uh, or is it different now? Unfortunately, no. It's so, uh, I, well, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens after the, as the pandemic uh, opens things back up, uh, as we open things back up, um, because before the pandemic, New York was was so uh, wealthy, at least Manhattan. Uh, and then, of course, people had moved into Brooklyn to find cheap space, and now that's been uh, consumed. But I think it 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 might be better now. Um, Right now, I live in, in the Hudson Valley, which is up north of the city where I raised my family with my husband. So, uh, uh, yeah, I th I'm hopeful. I mean, New York is, I love, I love New York. It's, uh, but I think that the richness of it, the, the inability of, of artists to be able to start out there um, these days is, is not a good thing. Of course, there's Queens and there's Queens and there's Staten Island still, which I think are relatively inexpensive. So where in America uh, or even the world would you recommend um, for new artists to start if you're not looking at New York? 
Well, that's that's the interesting thing is that you don't have to be in New York anymore, um, and it, at all to be an artist. You because of the internet, you can be anywhere, and in fact, so many cartoonists now uh, live elsewhere. I don't know how many of them. A good little group of of new cartoonists do live in in, in Brooklyn, um, but I don't think you. I mean, there's so many great creative centers like uh, uh, Austin and Nashville and, uh, well, L.A. is very creative. Um, lots of growing, smaller cities have great, vibrant. And that's the thing that you, you might want to look for if you're starting out is a, a community of people, like-minded people. And you can find that online, too. Maybe a question that I had... Um when prepping for this podcast was also, you know, and we were kind of covering it, then where to start, which city, I guess what you're saying is the people are more important and with the internet, you can be in everywhere. Um, but how has the industry actually changed? If you look at all the decades, the introduction of the internet, you kind of went through all of it. How has it changed in all these decades from the beginning wow. to like now? That's a big question. We have the time. <laughs> uh, and, and it's funny you ask that because no, people don't usually ask me that, but I have lived through a lot of changes in publishing. Um, and I've, I've published books too, so I've watched that, that world change. Um, where to begin? Uh, uh, Maybe at the beginning, like, how was it like in the 80s or when you just started out mm -hmm. um, versus, um, you know, just before the Internet bubble? Mm -hmm. Was there like a big change leading up to the Internet bubble as well? Well, when I started out, it was uh, the world was still very much newspaper based and magazine based. People buy newspapers, they buy magazines, they read them, they don't carry them around with them. And uh, and uh, magazines ruled. They, they were very popular and very uh, important, um, as were newspapers. Uh, so there was a vibrant place for cartoonists, and cartoonists were well-respected. Uh, the whole world of political cartoons has changed drastically, too, because there were a lot more newspapers, and, and political cartoons were often on, cartoonists were often on staff, at the paper, at you know, at the local level, and they would get health plans and pensions, and you know, have a regular salary and stuff. That those those cartoonists and those newspapers are mostly gone now. I mean, there's still a lot of political cartoonists, but there's a very few on staff cartoonists now at at the publications. Maybe the big ones like the L.A. Times and the Washington Post and the Boston Globe all have a regular uh, person. Uh, cartoonist or two. So then uh, I think the internet bubble sort of came on slowly for the business and it changed the cartoon business slowly. Uh, and the New Yorker um, is a different kind of magazine in that it's it's still well respected and, and sort of, uh, what's a good word? Uh, there's a lot of reverence around the New Yorker. It's like it's people adore the New Yorker. They like they, they they make it a part of their lives. 
And so they, and that includes the actual print paper publication. They like to have it in their hands and read it. So the New Yorker uh, has come into the internet world really well. They they have a great website and it's um, uh, very active, very very very. I think they're doing a great job with it with the website. But the the magazine is still very strong. Um, so, but it was a gradual change, and I think it was a gradual change with other publications. Some of them died, and some of them have made the move into uh, internet world just fine. And I'm try I haven't really looked at this seriously to know why that might be that some survived and others didn't. Um, poor management would be one reason, but I'm sure the content reason is another. I don't know, th things that you could get easily online, like women's magazines, I guess. I don't know how many there are still out there. I don't know what the demographic is of those people who read them and want to have them in their in their hands versus getting the information you need about your how to do your hair, or what clothes to wear from online. So it's really fascinating. Um, cartoons uh, went through a couple of really difficult times with the advent of the internet, which I'm sure you're, we, you and I may have talked about this. Um, in 2005, there was the Danish cartoon controversy where uh, this uh, publisher in, uh, editor in, uh, in, in, the, in, uh, in Denmark uh, was testing the waters of free speech by commissioning a group of cartoonists or commissioning the cartoonists and artists that he knew uh, to draw a, a cartoon about Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad. And some cartoonists said, no thanks, and others did. And it uh, it didn't cause a stir right away. This is at the very beginning, 2005, beginning of the internet. But then the cartoons were used online and spread online by uh, people that didn't like the cartoons. And, and it became because some of them, some of the cartoons are pretty strong uh, and negative towards uh, uh, the prophet, um, and uh, they caused a lot of death and destruction, riots. These cartoons did. So we learned very quickly that the power of the internet and cartoons is a complicated subject. That that the cartoon you draw in your studio, you think maybe is funny, and you may think is is amusing. Uh, and your friends may think it's amusing, your your town may think it's amusing, your country may think it's amusing, but another country or another uh, socioeconomic group is is not going to understand it and not going to like it or going to take offense to it. So um, we learned quickly that, uh, or not quickly, I, I, this went over a couple of years, and the cartoonist who drew the most, the strongest cartoon had to have uh, uh, protection for years. I don't know if he's still alive. Um, and then there was the Charlie Hebdo murders in Paris uh, over the, the cartoons that the the artist did for, for that, that newspaper, Charlie Hebdo. Um, they caused... I'm not saying the cartoonists caused the problems, because it's both sides take should take responsibility, but it just shows you that uh, the internet is... is, is, is uh, a very complicated tool and one that you have to think about. So I've watched all that happen. It's um, my cartoons have always been sort of uh, uh, on the quieter side, even though I do politics. I I try so because it's my personality. I don't want to I don't want to um, insult unless it's a politician. 
the idea is to punch up, not punch down. If you're going to create a, a humor that's going to punch anybody, don't punch people that are lower than you or or at you know at your level. Punch the people that are running thing, running the country, and and doing making those decisions. So that's punching up. So I try I try always to if I'm going to punch anybody, punch up. Um, uh, so what else? The internet, I guess. So many magazines have died and cartoonists are now publishing online. Uh, there's not much money online for cartoons. There's some now. Uh, it's getting monetized more and more. Um, and writers are having the same trouble as, as cartoonists are, trying to find a way to monetize your writing. And then, um, yeah, that's a long answer. But I, I think I covered, it's just been kind of fancy. And I've used... I really like the internet. I've used it, and it helped. It helped me a lot in the in the early years, as I mentioned earlier, that when I started drawing more political cartoons, and I would draw more cartoons about women's rights around the world. And I was, of course, learning like the rest of us, learning more in more detail what it was like to be a woman in all parts of the globe. And so I felt like it was a, a responsibility of mine to to draw about that, to draw about women uh, and and the difficulties some of us are having in other parts of the world. Uh, so I love I love the internet and I have a great a great uh, connection with my Twitter followers uh, and and Instagram. I feel like it's to me, cartoons are like a dialogue. They're not me sitting here expounding my point of view, although there's a little bit of that in there. It's me having a conversation with my viewers. Like this is what I think about this. What do you think? And because um, uh, car cartoons can be very divisive, they can they can separate people very very quickly. And they can cause a lot of harm that way if you don't do it. If you're if you're hurting people by making fun of them, I don't see the point of that really. I see it as a, a dialogue. Cartoons as a dialogue. Because that was a question I wanted to ask um, as you were sharing your story. How in especially in America right now, but you know in some way it's starting in Europe as well. If you look at like Brexit and stuff like that. How do you balance both perspectives? Um, I guess that's more of a question for the U.S. and the U.K. where you have a two-party system. There's clearly two opposing parties there, uh, even though technically there are people on, on, it's like a spectrum, and people have a little bit of both in them. But yet when you publish a cartoon, it's either or. So how do you bring those two together? How, how do you not make it... Um, you know, divide people or angry um, mm -hmm. or not choose sides um, in such a highly political um, society nowadays? It's really difficult. Uh, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm coming at it as somebody who tends not to be tries not to be divisive with my work. Um, and it's, it's not easy, like, uh, because in some ways you end up, uh, if you draw a cartoon against a certain politician or the other party that you hate, uh, you're just preaching to the choir. You're just talking to people that feel the same way you do. So um, what I try to do in those kind of situations during the last election, I just try to uh, uh, make myself look at the the issue, 
the issues and less the personalities, not make fun of the personalities so much. Um, but still, you're going to be preaching to the choir and you're not going to get that many people from the, the opposing side pay attention to you. They're, they're just going to turn you off. So it's it's really hard. And I, you know, during the during the pandemic, when I was stuck in my studio, I spent I found a way to connect with people uh, by drawing every day on uh, on Instagram and a new platform called Haps News, and um, I uh, did it every day at five and then five thirty for the two different platforms. And I would draw just something about life, you know, about what was going on in the world, like. Oh, we're all in this together. We're all experiencing the pandemic. We're all dealing with something very new and strange. And I would just, I wasn't really necessarily creating a cartoon. I was just drawing and I'd have the phone in a device over my hand and just draw and talk about the healthcare workers or the people on the front lines uh, battling COVID or the people delivering your packages or the people in the store that have to still stock the things. So, you know, or children, how are children dealing with it? Or how are animals dealing with this? So I would just every day find something and talk to my viewers and exchange ideas. I mean, they weren't talking to me. They were writing to me in, in the comments and um, drawing. So it was a way to communicate. And and then we went into uh, Black Lives Matter. They got I got a little more political uh, with, those, with those events in the United States. Um, and still having a good dialogue with people uh, in the comments as I drew. And um, then it got into politics and the election. And I started being more political in my cartoons, more expressing my opinion about what was going on, my my liberal leaning uh, and dislike of, of uh, Donald Trump. So uh, I got more open about that. I usually try to be quiet, but I was very open about it because I was scared. Um, and I lost some viewers. They came right out and said, I'm you know, I'm not staying, I'm leaving because you're getting political. I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. Uh, and they, they told me that. So it was interesting that they had, they, they probably knew when they were first watching me that my, my leanings were, were, uh, were liberal. Probably just from seeing my site or seeing my Twitter stream. But when I started being more openly uh, angry about uh, Trump, that's, they just couldn't take it. They had to leave. So that's a very just obvious example of people saying I'm out of here you know you're gonna you're gonna be like that you're gonna be on that side well I'm on this side so goodbye so, so it was interesting and I said I'm sorry you feel that way we you know we can have a talk, dialogue about it um, and that's that's how I talk to people on Twitter if they disagree with me I said I'm I'm I really I would like to talk to you about it we, let's have it let's have an exchange but don't don't attack me personally um, that's when I'll, I'll shut shut you down so it's it's such a strange time mm -hmm. yeah it's uh i think there were some books written about how radicalized almost um both views are getting i think this was by um somebody who analyzes both parties and somehow in that book he started describing the evolution of even how republicans are getting more and more radicalized and that that tendency somehow is like a bit less on the democratic side, even though if you go really up to the extreme, it's also getting pretty crazy there mm -hmm. as well. Um, I'm just looking at it from a European perspective and I'm thinking the whole problem is you have only two parties. <laughs> uh, if you if you have more, I think it'd be less of a football mm -hmm. game than, mm -hmm. uh, 
because that's what it seems like like a big yeah. super bowl <laughs> yeah it's uh and it's not it's not really maybe maybe it'll get better uh in time i think it's quieted down right now um and i'm not drawing as much political cartoons in, right at the moment but uh yeah you're right the and i just wrote an article about this it hasn't been published yet by um, a publication called Persuasion about how cartoons are struggling, political cartoons, and how they uh, are often uh, as divisive as 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 many other forms of journalism. So, so um, maybe a, a bit less political of a question, uh, and, but I would say a very relevant question because it's not every day that we get someone who's in the same industry um, I would say doing it successfully. Um, I think you're doing great work, and mm -hmm. uh, and clearly, you know, this is your job. Uh, a lot of people tend to start, a lot of artists, but also a lot of startups tend to start. And um, you know, the statistics don't lie. Five years later, it's like seventy percent don't make it. Ten years later, ninety percent or something like mm. that. So it, you know, businesses are mm -hmm. almost not made to last. Um, how did you stay relevant throughout all those years? How did you make sure you you could cover your rent with this job? Um, what is it that you did to to make sure that you could, I mean, let's be honest, live the dream because you're doing something that is very artistic and then a lot of parents say, this is, you know, a dead end. You're not going to mm -hmm. get a job there. Mm -hmm. So how, but how did you do it in for like 30 plus years? Uh, just staying relevant is is um, learning is 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 all about reading as much as you can, paying attention to the culture and what's going on creatively with other people in other fields. Just keeping your pulse, and that's what cartoonists do anyway. Really, if they, most of us, if unless they're, if they're just trying to create jokes, then maybe not. But. Comedians, comedians have to stay relevant. They have, they they'll die if they don't. Um, the same thing with cartoonists. You have to, you have to know what, what people, how people are making humor, how people are, are seeing the world, how, uh, and so that involves uh, not only reading a lot but watching. I like watch a lot of shows to see what, what everybody's talking about. Um, follow, follow trends. See what the trends are on Twitter or Instagram to. Uh, um, TikTok, just see what people are doing. Just keep your keep your eyes open on what's going on, um, and I enjoy that. So it's not hard for me to do that. Uh, and um, the other thing about making money is that you also have to be very very flexible, flexible, and open to doing other things like illustrating books, um, uh, illustrating articles, uh, doing commissioned work. I taught for a couple of years in the early days of our. Uh, raising children um, and also I have a partner a husband who who earns a living so sharing that with somebody else is I just lost you is always sharing that with somebody else is always helpful um, sharing sharing the income and then uh, being open to other jobs that may not fit necessarily with your uh, with your your heartfelt career I taught I taught I co-taught kindergarten for a while and I taught in college for a while. So uh and those are great jobs too. 
but I didn't, they were not my full jobs. They were just part-time with the cartooning. So it's being flexible to do things that uh, may not be totally exactly what you really would love to do, but are a part of um, our, our way to make, make more money in, in, in a given, given uh, span of time. So it's just being flexible. No. So, um, you know, is that um, achievable for everybody though, being flexible? Do you find that um, at one point it's maybe better to get a part-time job or something like that? Uh, or maybe get a completely different skill even? Mm. Yeah, part-time job, I did it. Um, I did it for a number of years teaching. Um, and I, I mean, I, if you, I don't just draw cartoons for the New Yorker. I have this other client who I do these really boring illustrations for every month that I'd rather not do, but they pay, they pay well. So I do them. Um, what else have I, so, it, and, and the idea of getting another skill, that's interesting. Because, I mean, if I look at your career, um, there's a point where you start speaking. I, I know you did things like TED and stuff like that. So, you know, going from drawing to speaking seems like a completely different skill to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that came about, um, it's just following a passion. So I wrote a book about the women cartoonists, a history book of the women cartoonists of the New Yorker because I was fascinated and interested in that subject. And I, I got a really small publisher to publish it. It's still in print. And the new edition is coming out this fall. But uh, that led to, I was so passionate about that subject matter that I, I took some speaking engagements that didn't pay very well just because I wanted to tell people about it. And I also wanted my book to sell. Um, and that led to, so that led to, to public speaking. Um, and then how did the TED thing come about? Oh, the curator of that particular TED, uh, her name is Pat Mitchell. She, I was on a panel with her, a panel about media, women in media. And uh, the, next, the next year she was curating that TED. It was a TED, it was a TED uh, conference about women. And um, I pitched myself. So there's moments in my life where I sort of lose my fear <laughs> and, and just know that I have something to say. And so I pitched doing a TED talk to, to her and she she said yes so and that particular TED talk changed my career because it led to a lot more speaking engagements and I found that uh, was a nice way to speak but also have the cartoons behind me as I speak so it was a way to so that's a new skill you're right I did work with a couple of actors to help me be better at that because I knew that it was something that maybe I could do I uh, even though I was really shy I thought the response on the TED talk was so huge um, and listening to people, actually hearing people laugh at my cartoons, even though the subject matter I was talking about was pretty serious, I mixed it in with the laughter, which is something I love to do anyway. And um, I, I was I was kind of hooked on that idea of speaking, using cartoons as I speak, and talking about serious subjects, uh, but peppering it with humor to make the, the seriousness more uh, palatable. So. Yeah. So then would it be too much to say that in order to stay relevant throughout all these years, 
it's not only stay flexible within the skill set that you have but also start building on top of that skill set with different skills and kind of almost different industries when you were entering i guess books is a different industry than magazines but also public speaking and women in media it is you know women at rights and stuff like that that seems to me like a completely different industry than cartoons yeah i think uh you have to keep be aware of of um let's see be aware of a couple things be aware of your skills and what you might be capable of um uh and 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 maybe use those or hone those skills I mean, I found out that when I wrote that book, Funny Ladies, I found out I, I can write, you know, I, I didn't really, I mean, I write captions, but I didn't know I could write long form. And that led to more writing long form um, in articles. And um, I wrote a, an op-ed piece for the New York Times about Charlie Hebdo. Uh, so I, I, you just keep stretching yourself and um, trying new things. It's it's the only way to go really for me is just keep trying new things animation I know I'm not very good at it I don't I, I I realize that that there's animators out there uh, that are highly skilled and amazingly creative I don't pretend to be able to get there I don't have the time to learn that even though I could I don't know if I could get there but um, so I use animation at my level I, I make little mini animations very crude because my drawing is loose and it, I think it kind of works. So I try animation. I use that. I make GIFs. So I'm always trying new things because I, I find it it's fun. <laughs> Why not? You know? Uh, and uh, I mentioned screenwriting before. I think screenwriting is... Uh, there's, there's some connections between film and cartoons because cartoons... Obviously, comics are little films. They're like little stories in in frames but a single panel cartoon is also a little story in one frame so i feel like the cartoonist's brain and the filmmakers or the screenwriter's brain and the filmmaker's brain might be have might have a crossover there that um so i'm trying my hand at screenwriting who knows if anything will happen of it but uh it's fascinating it's it's fun and uh it's, it's just trying something new um had a great question that slipped my mind um um but related to uh yeah nowadays obviously we've discussed the past we've discussed how you stayed relevant for new artists uh, nowadays graphic design is a big thing as well uh, designers people in branding just any type of artist um but more specifically artists that are in your field like cartoonists illustrators writers what how would you recommend they start their careers would you tell them to get a job um, learn from somebody more experienced would you tell them to start as a self-employed artist like you did uh, would you tell them to start an agency what would be the first steps you'd advise them to do to maybe at least cover their rents well you got to get a job first <laughs> um. Uh, get a job so you can pay the rent um, and hopefully it'll be a job that that's not too stressful 
so that you have energy for your passion on the side. Um, and I'm not sure if I, I'm answering your question deeply enough. This is, I've never been asked this before. To, to, to take my experience and, and make it broader to other creatives. But uh, I think I said some of this already, to surround yourself with supportive people, or in some cases, find a mentor, uh, somebody who's in the similar business. I mean, I, I talked, when I was young, I talked to many older cartoonists to pick their brains. Um, and look at their work. That's that's the other thing. You could you can actually pick their brains by looking at their work. You don't have to talk to them necessarily. Uh, um, starting an agency, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, if there's history. There are like Pushpin Studios. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. That was a that was a an ad agency in New York in the in the seventies and eighties. It was started by three cartoonists or three people who had. Uh, two of them were cartoonists, I think, and one was was an art director. But um, they were probably just three friends that wanted to start an ad agency. But that was then. I don't know how it would work now. Um, there's so much importance put on uh, social media presence, and I uh, to to make your business go forward. And that's something we really haven't talked about. But I um, I have navigated that world. Uh, I, I find it kind of fun. I don't, and I try to promote what I'm doing without being obnoxious about it. So there's an art form to that, being able to get your work out there, but also um, be a human being about it. You know, not just promoting, promoting, promoting. Um, I try to, I try to get my work out there and also get me out there. So I'm a, I'm not, a, I'm not just a cartoonist, but I'm a person too. So people can see, like on Instagram, they'll see some of my daily life in there as well as my drawings. Um, so there's a whole social media component and that's constantly changing. I don't even know if websites are that important anymore for some creatives because people could just Google you and they can see your work, right? I mean, is that true in Europe? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to America. But I mean, websites for, for instance, filmmakers are still very important. Okay. Well, it's probably still true. Um, filmmakers, it's yeah, I bet it's more so true with filmmakers. But with cartoonists... It's a good place for people to find out how to contact you uh, and to find your handle, your handles, and see a sample of your work. It's one, one, one place, one location, uh, and it's important to keep your website updated, which I need to do. Because <laughs> um, on which socials are you most active, and how did you choose those specific socials? Were there certain reasons for it? Well, I started out heavily with Twitter, uh, and I'm still quite active there, but not as active as I used to be. I used to, Twitter, uh, I, I was an early adopter of Twitter, so I think I've been there since 2008. Because um, I like Twitter, and it's, it's really a, a, a hub for journalists. There's a lot of journalists on Twitter, and a lot of international journalists, as well as everybody else, but that's that was my, when I first found Twitter, I was teaching women's studies at, at Vassar College. And I remember getting to know Twitter and realizing, oh, there's all these feminist feminist groups here. That's like, you can find out what's going on with all kinds of people being activists around the country. And that's that's fascinating. And that's still true, I think, with Twitter. 
Um, and I try to be a positive force on Twitter. Um, uh, and then Instagram came along and I took to that. I use that a lot now because that's where most people are, uh, visually anyway. Um, and that's and then Facebook, I, I post there, but I don't use it that much. Um, uh, the nice thing about Facebook is that I have a lot of international cartoonist friends that I've met in person that are very active on Facebook. Some of them use Facebook because they can't publish anyplace else. So it's a, it's a nice place for that. What about LinkedIn and YouTube to get, for LinkedIn, maybe access to other businesses and YouTube to other creatives? Good point. Yeah, I use LinkedIn. I, I post, I, I write, every week I write a little and draw a little column for uh, Medium. Do you know Medium.com? Yeah, Medium is also social media. Yeah, um, they, I've been with them for a while and I'm part of their new creators program where they, it's, a, it's slightly monetized, so I get a little bit of money for that, but... I like Medium because it's a great platform for, it's like a blog platform for those of you who don't know it. And um, it's very easy to use. And it's uh, st started by Ev, Ev Williams, right? Is it Ev? One of the founders of yeah, Twitter. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I post on Medium and then I post that on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I don't, LinkedIn is less intuitive for me, but I'm, I'm trying to be there. So that in case somebody wants to hire me for speaking engagement or something, you're right, because it's a whole nother, whole nother world of people that um, you might not see on Twitter, Instagram. And then uh, YouTube, I do have a YouTube channel, which I mentioned HAPS earlier. Have you heard of HAPS TV, HAPS News? No, no, it's no? first time. It's a, uh, a startup. It's a brand new um, live streaming blog platform, and they approached me during the pandemic when I was doing this live drawing in my studio because they're a broadcast network. And they, um, the great thing about, there's a couple things about HAPS that's great is that it, it started out as a journalism platform, but now it's morphed into something else. Lots of different creators are there. But uh, they, when you post, when you stream on HAPS, it, it automatically goes to YouTube and it automatically goes to Reddit and it automatically goes to uh, Twitter. It hasn't connected, and Facebook. It doesn't connect with Instagram, unfortunately. So, uh, so I, I have a presence on on uh, YouTube, doing those as well as some other things I've done over over the years. But um, I, I haven't. YouTube and LinkedIn are not as intuitive for me. I haven't really spent time uh, getting to the heart of that. Those two, but uh, are they really pop? Are they really popular in in Europe? Uh, those two. Um, I think they're also really popular in America and the rest of the world. LinkedIn is going crazy right now. I think it's like the new thing, um, especially for business. It's everything that's business is LinkedIn. Um, I would say it's way more relevant than Facebook. Um, oh, yeah. How do you, I need some advice on how to use LinkedIn. <laughs> sure, I can share some stuff. We have uh, quite a good presence there. Um, but maybe a more specific question to Medium, because I saw that you also do stuff on Medium. Um, I myself am also part of the creator program there, but a uh, quick question, like, did they approach you? Did you just sign up automatically to the creator program? Um, why did you decide to do Medium? And uh, what type of things do you write on Medium? I learned about Medium, I don't remember how many years ago. <clears throat> 
I don't remember when it was started, but uh, there was a, a fellow cartoonist, fellow cartoonist, political cartoonist, who invited me to be a part of his publication on Medium. They used to have publications. I think they may still, but they're they still have them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and it was a pub, it was a publication called The Nib, and it was all cartoon political cartoons. And he invited me to to be a part of that. And so I published cartoons with them, The Nib on Medium for a couple of years. And then my cartoonist colleague decided to leave Medium and take The Nib with him. I don't know what the problem was. There's some disagreement they had with uh, Medium. And I just really liked Medium so much. I just stayed and. Uh, continue to do political cartoons and I, what I do is political cartoons mixed with writing, some commentary. So I do some of that uh, as well as about politics, about women's rights, about about journalism, whatever comes to mind. And um, lately I've been doing a lot of posting of live my live drawing, the stuff that I do on HAPS and Instagram, live drawing uh, out in the out in the world. So uh, it's, it's a way of... Uh, it's a it's a new this live drawing thing that I do is sort of a new a new form of journalism that I that I pioneered. Um, and we can talk about that if you want. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before we get into the live drawing thing, which is I think also super relevant to Instagram and and I don't know if you've tried TikTok, but with the Medium part, you said at one point you write on Medium and then you post it also on LinkedIn. Do you then just? copy-paste the same content and make a LinkedIn article, or do you just copy-paste the link and post it on uh, LinkedIn? I've done both, because I'm not sure what the medium is changing. It's it's uh, interface, is it? I mean, I feel like before when I posted on Medium, you had to subs- you had to be a, a, pay- a paid subscriber to access my articles, but that's not true now, is it? Is that right? The first five are free, but I'm starting to notice that you the earnings are definitely going down, and it's much tougher to to actually like succeed on Medium. It's not as easy as you know some people tend to show. That's maybe a question that I had for you. Do you notice a trend down in earnings and views? Or I have, and I I tried to figure out what that was, and I actually on LinkedIn I would cut and paste the whole article as you said, and make it a LinkedIn article, which is something I need to explore more, the idea of a LinkedIn article. Um, but Medium now offered me, they offered, maybe you did this too, but they offered me to apply to be uh, one of, uh, a fellowship, I think they're calling it, where you get, if you publish four articles a month, you get $200 a month, as well as your regular um, earnings. So, and I'm getting more and more subscribers for some reason. So I don't know what's, I really don't know what's going on. Do you find that fellowship program worth it? Because if you would actually look at what the cost is of publishing four articles and $200, that doesn't seem very fair. It doesn't. But I keep hoping it will lead to something else. It's the only place I know where I can actually publish my live drawing. Um, I've, I've published in, I've done live drawing for uh, for major publications like The New Yorker, for CBS News, uh, a Fusion, but they all have sort of backed away uh, and not wanted to do it anymore. So um, it's really the only place I can find. But maybe LinkedIn is another way to go. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I definitely recommend that. But on the other side, it's also, you know, if Medium is offering that so it felt very interesting. So Medium Fellowship, you said, and then they just 
make sure that you have some money coming in. But but how would you compare it to before the pandemic? Do you feel like the views have gone like how many times did they go down? Is it just a small dip for you or did it really go badly? It was a small dip. I never made much money on Medium. Uh, so it was just a creative outlet for me, basically. The, the amount of money I was getting was nominal. Um, so it was just a way, a place for me to put my live drawing and for people to see it. So. Clear. Okay. Um, so then uh, I definitely want to ask about this whole life drawing thing. Is this something that you specifically started kind of creating for the whole social media thing, the Instagram to stay relevant on Instagram or what is it? Can you explain it more? Uh, it started before Instagram was, was even in existence. So um, I believe I started doing it around 2014. And I did it, uh, what it is, I have, I have an iPad and uh, I was given an iPad back then. And I um, was drawing the State of the Union Address, which in the United States is an annual speech the president gives. And it can be kind of boring, but it's something that I need to watch. I, I like watching it because it's a very, it's got a lot of history to it. Um, but I was watching it and I thought, well, I'll just, this is boring. I'll just draw what I'm seeing on the TV, like, isn't it funny that the color of that guy's tie or that woman's wearing that red dress or something visual? And I put it on Twitter because the, the app I use, you can send out your drawing immediately to Twitter. Um, and I started doing that with that address and I realized that uh, it was striking a nerve, that people enjoyed seeing these drawings and they're very, my drawings are very, uh, can be very bold and, and quick and loose. So it's not like a studied cartoon. Uh, each, 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 each drawing is not a studied cartoon, it's just a, a drawing. So um, a quick drawing, sometimes with a snarky comment in the, in the tweet. And so that's where I started doing that. And I began doing it more with, with events on television that uh, I thought other people in the world were watching. Uh, I did the Oscars from, from, uh, from my TV set for a couple of years before I managed to find a way to get to the Oscars. They invited me to be... Um, and a, a credentialed cartoonist at the Oscars, not in not in the theater, but in all the other places. Um, and I started drawing on location for places. Like I'd go with my iPad and draw what I saw and tweet it out immediately. So it's very connected to social media. Um, and I, I wanted to go to the political convention, the Democratic National Convention in 2016. So I approached CBS, I, I knew somebody there. And uh, the social media guy there loved the idea, so they sent me to the to the convention, and I drew the politicians speaking, but I also drew the people behind the scenes that were taking out the trash. I draw people uh, in their funny American political costumes watching the convention. Um, it was a way of uh, reporting on an event visually with some words, but not not always a lot of words. And um, so I did that for CBS for. Through almost three years, CBS News. Uh, I did it also for the New Yorker and some other places. Um, CNN did it for CNN. So it was really fun. I went to the women's marches. I went to to the White House to draw a press conference. Um, and uh, I still continue to try to do that. I do it for some political uh, journalist uh, uh, events. Some journalists uh, like the. Uh, 
what's it called? The, uh, I can't think of the name of it right off the bat. International Center for Journalists, which tries to help journalists around the world uh, who are in trouble. I'll, I'll, draw, that, I'll draw that, uh, draw their gala um, where they give awards to famous international journalists who are, are, are on the front line. So I do a lot of pro bono work that way too, trying to use my drawings as a way to point people to an event or to a cause um, because people see the cartoons on social media and they're like, oh, what's that? And they'll, so cartoons have a way of drawing, drawing people in, no pun intended, to, to, you know, in a way that words often can't. Um, so I can use my cartoons to, uh, to spotlight important issues and events. So. Yeah, makes sense. Do you find that that style has really helped grow your social media? Yes, definitely. It just uh, doing draw, live drawing the Oscars uh, gets a lot of uh, eyeballs. So I get a lot of follows from that. Yeah. Nice. And, and do you find that, do you suffer when algorithms change, for instance, with Instagram or Twitter or whatever, where um, the algorithm changes and you feel like you don't have as much exposure anymore to all of your followers? Yeah. How do you, how do you fix that? Yeah. Uh, well, I, the common knowledge is that when they do that, it's because they want to monetize the platform. So in order to get access to your followers, you need to pay ads or pay to boost your posts. But I always wondered with people who are extremely relevant and do live things, if that's still also the case. But you're telling me that that's also happening for you. Well, I don't. I'm not a good one to, to look at stats on social media. It's all intuitive for me. So I'm not... I don't pay a lot of attention, but I get a feeling sometimes that, um, like on Instagram, it's just the same people over and over and over and over again commenting on my on my work. Occasionally, it'll it'll veer out into more people, but that's usually because like the New Yorker will post one of my cartoons, and then I get a lot more people from from another part of the world. Um, so I don't know. I and I do get requests for. Uh, monetizing, but I don't I don't know how to monetize Instagram. I haven't figured it out. I haven't tried. But uh, sponsorships, stuff like that, I just don't really want to do that. No, it makes sense. And uh, Instagram is definitely becoming more tough. Have you uh, looked into TikTok? We had actually the general manager of TikTok Central Europe on episode 50. Um, and she really like convinced well i was already quite convinced into tiktok so i was very excited that she came on um had some you know skepticism around the topic but it seems like they're really wanting to grow and do something different than instagram obviously instagram blatantly copied them at one point <laughs> but uh but have you checked out tiktok uh i still haven't done it but it seems like a very supportive platform oh good i love tiktok i i do and i do have a presence there i've done some um just just uh, little uh, videos of my hand drawing, because um, people seem to like watching artists' hands draw. Not 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 video grab on the screen, but actually seeing the hand draw. I haven't put my face on TikTok yet, um, but I love. I'm actually I I love TikTok. To me is uh, at least what I, what they're showing me. What what I'm seeing is. Um, reconfirms my faith and humanity that uh, people are creative and they're funny. People are so funny. They're just so funny. 
and and they find ways to make new kind of funny and i love it so i, I can get sucked into tiktok like everybody else for an hour if i, yeah, I love me too and they're doing well uh oh good good you should listen to that podcast if you want I will, but uh I will. no cool um i that that kind of that's something that i wanted to know uh, if you would compare your Instagram with your TikTok in views, I don't know if you lo actually look at the data, but how many views do you then tend to get on TikTok? Is it like exponentially more or? No. I mean, I post on Instagram all the time, daily. Uh, uh, and I've only done about six TikToks, so I, I can't, it's not really hard to compare. Um, and I, I don't really I don't really know how to use TikTok properly yet, so I have to figure that out. And I'd like I think guess I'd like to start combining my face with my drawing a little bit. But uh, it's got a whole it's a whole different sensibility there, and um, and there's also a, that bias that that some that some uh, users are being very open about is that there's a bias against people over a certain age not being on TikTok. So I'm I'm a little a little. Uh, put off by that but that's i guess that's changing fast right i mean i haven't i've seen every age group on tiktok uh, a lot of business people are starting to go into it that's how you know when <laughs> it starts getting ruined <laughs> um but um i've seen some contro controversies mostly around ip where people take like youtube videos from filmmakers and they like make it their own on tiktok that's pretty horrible and there's no way to report that part um, but outside of those controversies, you know, I do find that what uh, Sylvia, that was the general manager of uh, TikTok, uh, what she said is quite true, actually. You know, it's a platform to spread joy. It's just fun. And for me, you know, I discovered it a year or more ago. And it, it's just for me, I get sucked into it. And it's fun. It's like the old Vine, very much like that. Um, like what? I'm sorry? Like uh, what? Vine? I don't oh, know Vine. If you oh yeah, I remember Vine. Vine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've tried all of them. I even tried Snapchat for a while. So I've tried if it if it shows Snapchat up. Snapchat was not for me. No, I didn't like it either. And Reddit, I don't understand Reddit. Yeah. No, uh, well, we actually had the global head of advertising of Reddit also on. I think it was episodes in the 30s somewhere. Um, I love Reddit since that episodes. Like I go there instead of YouTube nowadays to, if I'm doing like construction around the house stuff. Uh, I recently started training for um, a triathlon, so I'm on Reddit as well. It's uh, it's like Facebook groups, but way better, like way better. Um, <laughs> I'm very biased here. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't I don't like Facebook anymore either. I, 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 well, I, I, still like, I still like some of the Facebook groups. I definitely enjoy them, but it's like Reddit is on a whole other level when it comes to groups and the support there. And there's very little... I find every time I go on Facebook, there's always somebody in the comments who's just negative. And I, I just... I don't understand why. And you, you just don't get that in Reddit. On Reddit, it's just nice. I, I, I very much like it there. Uh, it's very much a gamer community as well. But... Uh, uh, yeah, we are kind of coming on time and I wanted to ask you one last question before, you know, we properly wrap up and I give you the time uh, to share some stuff. Uh, but what what is like a final message you'd like to give to mostly artists, but also tech entrepreneurs who are kind of artistic as well? 
uh, for people who just want to start on, on this career path um, and, and they're looking at art as a possible option, what is, some, what is a message you'd like to pass on to them? I've, I found cartooning um, to be, when I started looking at it as a young person, um, just a great way to communicate with other people. And it's a great way to speak about what interests you. Uh, if you can draw, or even if you can't draw, you don't have to be technically proficient. There's many cartoonists who did not study art. Uh, and some of the best cartoonists are ones that are not, you know, don't have that um, noticeable skill. They, they, but they somehow can get a feeling in the line work. They can get a, an idea across with the with the stroke uh, that uh, speaks can speak volumes in a way sometimes that words can't. I, that, I mean, if you follow cartoonists in Europe, um, there's not so many like that in, in the United States, but some of the editorial cartoonists in Europe are incredibly powerful cartoonists. And they're, they're artists, they're more artists than cartoonists. And they, they, can, they can get an idea across with a visual metaphor in an instant, uh, and powerfully so, that has a lot of feeling in it. Because I feel like cartoons can go get to the heart as well as the mind quickly. And um, I, I, the world doesn't use cartoons or visual uh, expressive art as much as it should, I think. <laughs> I'm biased. But, um, and humor, humor is a great way to, to relax people and to, to get at difficult subjects too. If you, because you've got their attention, they, people love cartoons, so you get their attention and you, um, and then you can show them something new or show them a new, a way of looking at the world. So I love, I'm so, feel so grateful that I get to do what I do. Um, and, um, if you love to do it, then you'll find a way to make it happen. I think that's something you said earlier. It's like, if you're passionate about it, you'll find a way. I like that. I think those are really strong words to kind of finish the podcast on. Before we do, I'd like to roll out the red carpet for you. Where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Please share everything. And in books, obviously, that you have and stuff like that. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, luckily, I, I joined all sorts of social media platforms early on, so I got my name. It's L-I-Z-A-D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. So that's at Liza Donnelly Twitter, Instagram, um, LinkedIn, TikTok, <laughs> uh, YouTube, all of them. And um, uh, Medium as well. You can find me, my writing and drawing there. And um, my website is lizadonnelly.com. Uh, what else can I tell you? You had some books that you published? Yeah, I've done... I've done uh, nine children's books uh, that that you can find. I think seven of them are out of print, but some of them are online. Some of them are e-readers. I've done um, uh, like eight other books, collections of cartoons uh, about women, about uh, other subjects. I wrote a history of women cartoonists of the New Yorker from 1925 to 2000, and that's called Funny Ladies, and the new edition of that is due uh, out next uh, November, and it's called Very Funny Ladies, and uh, I'm going to have information about that on my website soon, but you can also uh, 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 
go to Amazon and find find a pre-order there. So it's it's because uh, there's so many more women drawing cartoons for the New Yorker. It's just really exciting. So that's uh, that's I guess that's about it. And my live drawing, you can follow me on Instagram and see me live draw or on oh Haps Haps News. It's, uh, it's a new platform, and I live draw there weekly. So nice. Thank you so much. I think that covers it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.